We prepare for school and our education. We prepare for emergencies and a future filled with uncertainties. We prepare for careers, for the working world. Lord willing, we prepare for marriage and a lifelong relationship with a, with a spouse. We prepare for vacations and time spent away from work with our families. We prepare for raising children, both financially and spiritually. We prepare for retirement as we get older and older. And I submit to you that life involves us getting prepared for a lot of things. But for Christians, there is one thing that oftentimes doesn't make it onto the list that I believe that we would all say is actually the most important thing that we should be prepared for. And that is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over the last three Sundays, we've been studying a passage that in every way prepares us for the future as believers. And the Grace of God series started with us focusing on Titus 2.11, talking about the grace of God in salvation. It allowed us to focus on the dynamic of God's saving or redemptive grace in a message titled Grace That Saves You. And then last Sunday, our series continued in Titus 2.12, and we were able to study another dynamic of God's grace and sanctification. And we considered, if you recall, some of the distinctions between the doctrines of justification and sanctification. And that God's word emphasizes um, certain distinctions in these doctrines. And that was a message titled, Grace That Sanctifies You. Well, this Sunday we have another full plate as we try to tackle two verses, verses 13 and 14 of Titus 2. And these verses allow us to see a continual theological progression that started with salvation in verse 11, sanctification in verse 12, and then an anticipation for our glorification in verse 13. Do you want to see how you can be most prepared for the Lord's second coming? Well, let's turn to our passage as we consider how God's grace would have us be prepared. And I'm going to read Titus 2, 11 through 15 again so we get the full context of our passage. This is what it says. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, from our text today, I want to share two preparations so that you can be zealous and confident for the Lord's return. And last week, I shared that verse 12 really functioned like cliff notes when it comes to our sanctification. And this week, in a similar vein, verse 13 is going to function like cliff notes as we 
prepare for Christ's return. The first preparation is in your notes, and that's to anticipate his second coming. And verse 13 will help us to anticipate the certainty of our hope as well as the manifestation of Christ's glory. Our second preparation will draw our attention to verse 14 and allow us to appreciate how the different dynamics of God's grace overlap in our salvation, in our sanctification, and in our opportunities to serve and glorify Christ with good works. The grace of God appeared not only to save sinners from the penalty of sin and to instruct believers in sanctification, but the grace of God also properly orients a believer towards their future. It's one thing to know your future. It's another thing to be prepared for it. Practically, how can you be prepared? Well, let's look at two preparations so that you can be confident and zealous for Christ's return. Our first preparation is this, anticipate his second coming. The grace of God continues to be the theme in our passage. It started in verse 11, and it's carried all the way through uh, this text. And over the last two weeks, God's grace has served as a tutor, as it instructed us on salvation. And then last week, it taught us on what it means to deny and to live for Christ in our sanctification. There were five comprehensive actions that we covered And now, it's instructing us to look to the future. Look at verse 13. It says this, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We first need to look at the verb looking for, and then we'll focus on the two objects of anticipation in our subpoints, letters A and B. The verb looking for is functioning as a participle, And it's a compound Greek word made up of two words, the preposition to and the word receive. And so the root idea is receiving to oneself. And it involves uh, really a, a, a joyful, watchful anticipation of some unexpected thing. And in the Greek, it's stressing the continual nature of anticipation and watchfulness, while at the same time, it emphasizes the inward nature of the longing. Think about something that you really longed for in anticipation. Can you think of something that you really longed for? Maybe it was when you were a kid, Christmas morning coming, right? There's a gift under the tree. You know what it is. You can tell by the box you remember. It was the one and only thing that you asked for. You, you're longing we, we were, I was one of eight kids. We had to wait at the top of the steps, and we couldn't go down until our parents woke up. And we were, like, up at, like, four. And they were not getting up at four or five or six or seven, for that matter. It was Christmas. They might have gotten up, I think, by eight. But maybe you were, were experiencing um, a longing or a waiting as you were uh, picking up a special friend or a loved one at the airport that you hadn't seen for a really long time. And you, you just, you, you long to see them. It was a best friend. I remember longing to turn 16 years old just so that I didn't have to be dri- driven around anymore by my older sister in, in the car. I, I wanted to drive myself. I longed to get my driver's license. 
Well, whatever you have longed for, I want you, I want you to multiply it a hundred times and then apply it to this verse. The idea with the verb is there's a very deep longing with the anticipation as you watch and wait. And the ESV actually translates it waiting for. And again, the idea is eagerly waiting with anticipation. And if you're a Bible writer and you write in your Bible, you can go ahead and even over the word looking, or if you have the ESV watching, I would write longing right over the top. It's good because that is, that's what that word is communicating. The Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul to use the same verb a number of other times, and we'll see these in the cross-references under our sub-points. And so we're looking at two preparations so that you can be zealous and that you can be confident for Christ's return. And having an accurate understanding of this first verb in the opening is just the beginning. Do you find yourself longing for Christ's return? Does looking forward to Christ's return have a practical impact on your walk and on your sanctification? Or do you find yourself suffering from distraction or indifference? It's very easy for our hearts to lose sight of this reality. But be encouraged because God's grace has you covered. And as verse 13 continues, by providing two objects of anticipation, these can fuel your passion to anticipate Christ's return. These are found under letter A of our first point in the notes. And the first object of anticipation is this, your blessed hope. Verse 13 continues. After we, right after the verb, it says, looking for the blessed hope. And the word Blessed had a wide range of meanings stemming all the way from being happy to being blessed by God. But when Paul uses it in the pastoral epistles, it focuses more directly upon God himself. And when combined here with the noun hope, it distinguishes this as a divine event. And this is an event that is going to take place. And it also marks this as a unique and singular hope characteristic of the Christian only. The world we live in places hope in many different things. Present hurts, uncertainties about the future, create a constant need for hope. Worldwide poverty, kids without parents, hunger, disease, human potential for war and terrorism, destruction. They all create a longing for something better. And historically, people have looked to the future with a mixture of longing and fear. And many have concluded that there is no reasonable basis for hope. And therefore, to hope is to live with an illusion. And sadly, many people have ended their lives by suicide when all hope has been lost. And this is just one of the many reasons why it's important for us to understand hope through the lens of Scripture. Scripture relates being without hope to to being in the world without God. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul shared this reality with believers when he said, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul also shares that unbelievers have no hope when it comes to death in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. True biblical hope is established in what God has done through the person and work of Christ. And this again is how we define the grace of God, which functions as our ongoing subject. The totality of Jesus Christ's person and work provides the foundation for a believer's hope. And if you do not have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then it is impossible for you to have hope as God defines it. To be godless is to be Christless. And to be Christless is to be hopeless. Though unbelievers can claim to have hope or to be hopeful or optimistic about other matters of life, the truest expression of hope is grounded and rooted in the person and work of Christ. How so, one might ask. Well, turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 6 so that we can see this together. Hebrews chapter 6. And the context of this passage, starting in verse 13, is pointing to salvation And as the passage heading shares in the NAS, it's speaking to God's infallible purpose in Christ. Infallible means an inability to err. So it's speaking to God's true purpose in Christ. And as the passage talks about the purpose, I want to direct our attention to verse 17 through 19. Those verses. In Hebrews 6, 17 through 19, it says this. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, and the unchangeable things are, of course, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. What a loaded passage of scripture for the believer. First, we get an affirmation of God's character and that it's impossible for him to lie. And what he promises to do, he will do. And that should be an assuring source of joy to everyone who trusts completely in him the second affirmation is the foundational aspect of hope and how it functions in the life of a believer we who have taken refuge in christ should be greatly blessed by the hope that is set before us in verse 19 this is how god describes it your hope in christ as a believer functions as an anchor of the soul What does this mean? It means that in salvation, our souls dwell securely through the hope that we have in Christ. And the power of Christ through the gospel anchors us. It secures us in such a way that our hope is just as verse 19 goes on to describe it, steadfast and sure. Hope allows our soul to, to be completely secure in Christ. 
And so if you don't have Christ, you don't have the anchor of hope. This most likely means that your hope is in something else. It could be in yourself. It could be in other people. It could be in science. Maybe it's in the medical arena. Philosophy. Finances. Stock market. Retirement. The Bible eliminates all sources of hope and leaves us with only one, and it is the anchor, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God calls every person on the planet to repent of putting their hope in something else besides Him. He is the Creator. He's the authority. He's the judge for all mankind, and we must come to Him on His terms. And his terms are perfection in order to stand in his holy presence. And since all human beings fall short of perfection for all of sin, and all fall short of the glory of God, then it reduces our options to only one. The Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who came and lived the perfect life, and who paid the perfect sacrifice and atoning work for sin. It's, it's the only option. And when a person trusts in Christ alone, by faith alone, Christ becomes the anchor of their soul. Scripture affirms that everyone who trusts in him will not be disappointed. From salvation onward, the anchor of our soul helps us to remain secure in him. So what does an anchor do exactly? Those who have done a little bit of boating, you know the importance of an anchor. And how it's sent down and really what it does is a sea vessel is secured to whatever body of water to, to the floor. And what that does is it really serves as a way of protection, a, a way of security from the wind, from the surrounding current, from the other things that pose potential threats. And just as a boat is secured physically by its anchor, in a much greater way Christians are spiritually anchored by the hope in Christ. And when the storms of life come, and they will, no matter what comes our way, our anchor, our hope, keeps us secure in Christ. What storms have you faced? What storms are you currently facing? God's hope is an anchor. Your hope in Christ is your anchor. And we're to cling to it, just as Hebrews said. We are to cling to it. Death, disease, destruction, and despair. They, they come in so many different forms in the raging sea of life. It could come in the form of a, your son or daughter being sent off to the war in Iraq or Afghanistan. And your blessed hope in Christ can encourage you with his sovereign hands of protection. Why? Because no bullet, no bomb is outside of his jurisdiction. 
It could be an unexpected illness or death of a loved one. Your blessed hope in Christ can comfort you knowing that we have a great sympathetic high priest who knows your suffering intimately, who will answer your prayers when the pain of the trial seems so overwhelming. (laughs) Just this week, Friends, I just got a text from him this morning. Friends of ours up at the Master College, they just they had their second daughter, little Ivy, came into the world on Monday of this week, and she was born with Golden Haar Syndrome, a disease that affects internal organs, born with a cleft palate, going to require a number of surgeries. And her little life just started. She's not even a week old, and it's already with an uphill climb. I was so encouraged. Their hope is in Christ. He is serving as the anchor of their soul. Maybe it's a financial hardship or a job loss. And your blessed hope in Christ can strengthen you with his word by affirming that he knows exactly what you need and when you need it. And he'll provide for you. And that he wants you to trust him. He wants wants you to cling to him. He is our blessed hope. It could be a broken relationship or a divorce. Your blessed hope in Christ can bring the gospel to bear on that relationship. And that God can lead them to repentance. And that repentance can lead to forgiveness. And that forgiveness can lead to reconciliation. That is what the anchor of the soul specializes in. So no matter what it might be, Your blessed hope in Christ is designed to keep you secure no matter what this world sends your way. Now, I need to clarify something here in verse 13 as it relates to the hope that's being talked about. It is referring to our hope in Christ, but it's also speaking to an actual event. And here's where our second sub-point will assist our understanding. We're still looking at the first preparation so that you can be zealous and confident for Christ's return But now let's focus on the second object of anticipation, and this is number two under letter A, his great glory. Look back at verse 13. It continues by saying, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Your blessed hope is one description, and the other description of the same event is then given. In the Greek, there's something unique happening here, and it's with the conjunction, and it, it's, it, it, there's a, a word for it, it's epi-exegetically, and what that means is that the first expression, the first phrase, your blessed hope, is actually being expanded upon, and, and a broader definition is being provided um, on the other side of the conjunction, and that leads us right to what we're saying. So what this means is the former phrase, the blessed hope, is given a fuller definition and explanation by the second phrase, the appearing of the glory. And the blessed hope 
of believers is further described, fulfilled really, by the appearing of God's glory. Remember that eager longing for the Christmas gift? Remember that longing to see somebody at the airport? The, the, the fulfillment of the joy that takes place when the gift is unwrapped and it's in your hand. Wow. It's right there. Or you're standing at baggage claim and, and they walk through the gate and you run to them and they run to you and you embrace and you just can't, you just, it's, it's surreal. You can't believe they're here. You haven't seen them in so long. It's wonderful. Well, this is Exactly what Paul is saying here with Christ as the one appearing. And the noun appearing is used only by Paul in the New Testament. And he uses it once for the first coming of Christ in 2 Timothy 1.10. But otherwise it always refers to Christ's second coming. And one commentator shared this insight. He said, Christ's first epiphany revealed God's grace, referencing verse 11. And his second epiphany will unveil God's glory, referencing verse 13. And the anticipated appearance is of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And in the Greek, this is really one complete expression. Great God and Savior affixed to Christ Jesus. And one commentator said it's one of the strongest and clearest statements regarding the deity of Jesus Christ anywhere in the scriptures. It's a good verse to know, especially if uh, Jehovah's Witness comes knocking on the door. Okay, this is a, a great place to, to point them. What's our takeaway, Cornerstone? What's our takeaway? Christ is coming. This is, this is not a hypothetical situation. This is not speculation. He is coming. His return is imminent, and his full glory is going to be on display. And I'll be the first to confess, it's hard to get our minds around that reality. It really is. And if you have thought about it some, if you've considered it some, maybe you've uh, been thwarted by it because you're just like, "I I can't grasp it, I can't comprehend it. Well, let me just share this with you. You're in good company. You really are. There are many theologians who've who've pondered this reality, and this is what one of them shared. He said, As we approach the doctrine of the glory of God, we realize immediately that we are broaching a subject which is potentially nebulous and unclear. For the glory of God is not a single attribute or a perfection of God to be observed and documented, such as we see in systematic theology or in books specifically describing the attributes and names of God, it would be difficult for the glory of God to be handled this way. For it encompasses all that he is and does. It is essential and co-natural to the Godhead so that he cannot be God without it. For he is, quote, the God of glory, Acts 7-2. And thus it's God's purpose to glorify himself. Referencing Ephesians 1, 3-11. And so I can't, I'm not, other theologians before have explained the difficulty of just imagining the, the reality of Christ's return. And, and I know it's going to be glorious, right? I know that it's going to be powerful, that it's going to be dynamic. 
But God's word is calling Christians to eagerly anticipate it with great longing and desire. And there are passages that can help us understand some of the implications and allow us to see how this reality will impact us uh, because actually it relates to the doctrine of our glorification. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to Philippians, Philippians 3 and verses 20 and 21. And you got to see this because this is straight from God. Awesome. Philippians 3, starting in verse 20. Paul says this, and in the context, this is us pressing on to the upward call. This is, this is us pointed towards heaven. This is us being mindful of where we're going. Verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And how's he going to do that? By the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. And all God's people said, wow, wow. That's, that's, that's going to be something. But his glorification and his coming in glory is your glorification. And so, it's just d- dynamic to consider. First uh, John 3, 2, the Apostle John says it this way. We're, when we get there in our care groups, we're going to be able to study this verse. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Christ's return in glory means that raptured believers will also be glorified. And though time won't permit us to take a, a, a comprehensive look at the doctrine of glorification, I do think it would serve us well, considering the sermon proposition, to consider just a few of the practical implications that accompany our glorification as we anticipate Christ's return. And these implications are, um, they also provide some ways and how we can cultivate a deeper longing in our hearts. And I want to give you three practical implications of Christ's return in glory and the reality that we also will be glorified upon his return. And this is letter B in, uh, under our first preparation. Number one, glorification should motivate a true relationship with Christ. The reality of heavenly glory should motivate all persons to be certain of their relationship with Jesus Christ. I shared earlier that that your blessed hope in Christ serves as the anchor of the soul, but it needs to be emphasized time and time again that he is the only anchor of the soul. And those who do not know Christ must understand that their eternal destiny is based on their response to Christ made in this life. In Matthew 25, verses 10 through 12, Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins and that upon his return to glorify his saints that we should be prepared and that we should emulate who? The five wise virgins in the parable who 
were prepared and watchful for the Lord's coming. Not the five foolish maidens who were unprepared and thus excluded from the wedding banquet. If you are unsure, listen. It's like pastoral timeout right in the middle of the sermon. If you are uncertain about where you're at in the standing of your relationship with the God of the universe, there's nothing more important. I I would say, you can tell your boss this too, call off work this week. Get right with the Lord. Get right with God. Nothing's more important. You might lose your job. God will supply you with another job. I'm just saying, it's, it's, there's nothing more important. And we need to feel the weight of that. And so many people in our church do. And I, I just rejoice in that. We, we, we know we're, we're, we're confident in, in our relationship. We trust the Lord. He, he serves as the anchor of our soul. And we see how he provides. And there, there's a testimony, an ongoing testimony about how he's working in our lives. And, and we rejoice in it. But if you're uncertain, you must know. You must know. And our study in 1 John is going to bless us again. Because when we get to the end in 1 John 5.13, it lets us know that these things have been written so that you may know that you have eternal life. Number two, glorification should motivate believers to live holy lives. The prospect of our future glorification should stimulate Christians in our sanctification. Glorification is the ultimate expression of holiness. God is a holy God. Heaven is a holy place. God's people are called to be holy and sanctified people. Peter presented the ethical implications of the future day of the Lord and he challenged his readers by saying this in 2 Peter 3, 10 and 11 when he said, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? We ought to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and the speed in which it's coming. And Peter continues in verse 14, he says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, love that, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. And we learned a a very important lesson last week when we talked about our sanctification and the distinction, right, between our justification and our sanctification. We're perfect in our justification. When when a person is declared righteous before Christ, there's no way to improve on that. But we're imperfect in our walks before God. And really the call is for us to to practice our position. You know, um, and we do that because God's word is very clear that he receives glory even in the process from the watching world, from the heavenly host, the grand demonstration of our lives, glorify who he is. The apostle John also identified the Christian's hope 
as, as Jesus' future appearing and our being made like him. And then he added that this reality should encourage believers in this way. In 1 John 3, 3, it says, everyone who has this hope in, in Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. Christians who anticipate the coming glory renounce. Listen, we're going to renounce, church. This is us gathering together. This is how we, we stimulate one another. This is how we share, how we encourage, how we shepherd one another to, to, to good deeds, to honor the word. And we're going to renounce everything that defiles body and spirit. It's where we're going. It's preparing us for our future. It is getting us ready for where we're going. And as we grow in our purity, this stands in stark contrast to this impure world, and it will cultivate a longing for Christ's return and rescue from this world. It just does. It just it, 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 it makes us long. I, I don't know about you. I'm ready to get out of here. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen, Cornerstone? Are you ready to get out of here? I'm ready to get out of here. I am. You know, I, and I, I'm the father of three young kids. I get that, right? I'm, I'm, you know, but you know what? Even in the, grand, in the grand scheme of things, even if the Lord were to take me tomorrow, he's still, he, he's still got, they're his. In the end, they're his. He's, he's got them covered. And we, I'm telling you, church, it, we, we got to cultivate this. We have to think about this. This reality, as we look heavenwardly, as we look upwardly, we, it, it has an impact on the soul. It, it, it has us focus on eternal matters. And that's why we're to seek the kingdom first verse that we'll get to under our second point we're in Colossians 3 2 we're to set our minds on things above and not on the things of this earth number three glorification should motivate believers to face the future with great confidence the hope of future glory should fortify believers to face the end of all things even though people are living longer lives today, the end is not far off, either by reason of death or the reality that this, we're, we're living in the church age and Jesus Christ's second coming is closer than it's ever been. And tomorrow it's going to be even closer. And friends, just, just I don't want to get all... Um, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist up here. I don't want to allow the, the, the worldly things because the, the devil and the scheme and all the things that are going on and just the, the lost reality of this world. We, just, we see the progression. We see the consequences of unbelief right before our eyes, don't we? I mean, it is just escalating. It is such a negative eschatology. Things are going to progressively get worse and worse and worse. And then before they get really bad, he's coming. Before they get really bad, he's coming. And we're out of here. And we will meet him in the air. And we will be glorified. And we will be in his presence. And then that starts, that starts the real demonstration 
That's when the wrath of God, that's when the tribulation will start. And it will be spectacular as God pours out his judgment and the consequences on an unbelieving world. And so until then, until then, we, we, we want to be faithful to what he's called us to do, and that's to make disciples, to walk in faithfulness, to, to live in such a way that people are pointed vertical. Well, believers can face the future with glowing confidence by the virtue of the Lord's victory for us. And even physical death is something that we do not have to fear, but can be celebrated. Saints of God enjoy the good of eternal life here and now. And you can also take courage in the fact that you will not face, uh, that you'll, you'll face God not as a judge, not as a stern, harsh judge, but that you're going to face God as a loving Father who's, who's forgiven you, who, who considers you cleansed, who considers you perfect, who can, considers you righteous based on what Christ has done for us. There's no fear of condemnation, either in this life or in the life to come. Well, Titus 2, 13 and 14, provide two preparations so that you can be zealous and confident for Christ's return. The first preparation is to anticipate his second coming. And this will happen as you focus on your blessed hope and his great glory. And the second preparation is to appreciate his sacrifice. And after pointing to our eschatological future in verse 13, Paul now reverts back to the historical work of Christ so that we can appreciate him both as the Savior and Sanctifier. And this verse is loaded, and our time is up. And so we'll stop here for this morning, and we'll continue with our second preparation next Sunday. All right, please pray with me. Gracious Father, we acknowledge you, thanking you for um, being the anchor of our soul. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our blessed hope. We confess, Father, that our hearts, we, we fall short. We, we're, we're so distracted. We're so distracted, Father, by the things of this world. And that you want us to cultivate a desire and a longing to be with you face to face. And we thank you that in spirit we can have fellowship with you now. And that you reveal yourself to us. You allow us to see who you are and to understand more about you through your word. But it's all going to change when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in glory. And I pray, Father, that that would have a practical bearing on our sanctification. That we would be mindful. That we would continue just to meditate on the awesome reality of what our future holds for us in Christ. We just want to praise you. We thank you. We know that. There are many in our church right now who are facing 
serious trials. And I pray, Father, that you would allow just even your words spoken today to be a comfort to them, to let them know just to hang on, just to hang on and to trust you and that you will see them through, that you will bless them, that you will provide for all their needs, no matter what it is, financially, medically, spiritually, you'll be there for us. So, Father, we just want to praise you for your awesome nature and we look forward to next week when we can continue our study from Titus 2.14 we give you praise and thanks for all that's taken place this morning we ask that you would bless our efforts in FOF and how to study the Bible in equipping hour and that we can continue to be an equipped church as well we give you thanks and praise in Jesus name Amen